0: I'm Hamish McAllister Williams. I'm a professor of affective disorders at Newcastle University, consultant psychiatrist. Um, and I work in the area of mood disorders. Clinically, um, I look after patients with complex and difficult to treat mood disorders. Um, and I'm also director of education for um, BAP and a long standing BAP member.
1: So yeah, tell us a bit more about the event, Hamish, for people that haven't been along before. Well, uh, for me, it's one of the big highlights of the year.
0: Um, the it, it, it is a fantastic meeting um, for bringing together um, all the people that are interested in the, um, I guess you could describe it as the biological end of, of psychiatry um, in the UK. Um, and what one of the things one of the many things that makes it a, an interesting exciting meeting is it brings together preclinical scientists as well as clinical scientists um and there is also um input and involvement with industry as well so it really does produce a very exciting um uh, environment um for discussion around the science um of um the science underlying the biological side of um mental illness
1: and there's a couple of sessions that are kind of labeled as either difficult to treat or treatment resistant Um, and this is an important you know semantic point that we need to make at the start of this i think so on sunday afternoon there's a session called treatment resistant depression best practice and beyond and then the session that you're part of on the monday afternoon the clinical utility and potential generalizability of the difficult to treat concept. So let's start off with that. What's the difference between being treatment resistant and being difficult to treat? Yeah. Okay. So treat treatment resistant
0: depression. And all of this discussion and the the plenary that I'm involved in starts with um, depression, unipolar depression. Um, Traditionally, um, if a patient's depression has not responded to two adequate trials of antidepressants, then the uh, depression would be defined as uh, being treatment-resistant depression. There's not 100% con- consistency in that definition, but it's generally accepted that that, that roughly speaking, is the, the definition for treatment-resistant depression. Now, there's a number of issues with that. Um, I guess you could start off with the terminology. Um, there's issues around the semantics of describing somebody as having treatment-resistant depression. It's a very nihilistic way of describing it, um, and it can fuel hopelessness um, in the clinicians. Uh, what can I do? The patient's got treatment-resistant depression. And it can fuel hopelessness in patients, and depression itself is associated with hopelessness as a symptom. So that can be a really negative and rather toxic mix um, so there, there is an issue there. Um, there's an issue around the definition. It's defined on the basis of failure to respond to two antidepressants. But what if they've had a course of psychotherapy? Does that make a difference? Um, do the uh, antidepressants have to be from different classes of antidepressants? What constitutes a different class of an antidepressant? Um, how long should the course be? What sort of dose should be used? How do we assess outcome of that what do we do about n- these new neuromodulatory tra- uh, treatments? We've got an ECT. Uh, where does that fit in? Um, what about transcranial magnetic stimulation, TMS? Where does that fit in? So there's a lot of question marks uh, around the, the actual definition. And then there's issues around, does it actually define a qualitatively different population of patients? And the evidence doesn't really support that, in my opinion. Uh, rather, it supports the notion that We have a number of abnormalities, biological abnormalities that we see in patients with depression, but it's a bit of a continuum. And clearly patients with treatment resistant depression, probably a little bit more at the end of the more extreme abnormalities um, that we see, but it's not a a clear qualitative difference. There isn't a clear demarcation that occurs when somebody's uh, depression has failed to respond to a couple of different treatments. So we've got that as an issue. The other thing from a clinical point of view is well, what does it mean from from to the clinician? Uh, are we supposed to suddenly start doing something very different at that point in time, but not before it? And what do we do then subsequently? Because we see many patients, unfortunately, who have a whole series of different treatments, not just two or three. What do we do? If they've not responded, their depression has not responded to four treatments or five treatments, you know, should should there be another point there? In the UK, it's not the point of uh, or or an indicator for referral to secondary uh, care uh, services. It's not clear in NICE guidelines, for example, that we all of a sudden start doing something radically different at this at this point of time. Again, it is part of a of a continuum. And clinically, it's not just non-response that's the problem. It is also lack of sustaining a response. So people are relapsing, they're having frequent episodes, or they have a transient improvement with a treatment, but then they become unwell again. And there's a third problem as well, and that is lack of tolerability to medication. And you could broaden that out into saying, Well, some of non-response comes because patients don't take medication. So it can be linked with non-adherence, which can be to do with poor tolerability, or it can be just a general non-acceptance of the diagnosis, not wanting to take medication, all sorts of different reasons. So in the clinic, non-response, failure to sustain the response and intolerance of treatment are all equally important, not just non-response, which the treatment... Uh, resistant paradigm focuses on i think you can then go even further and say that the treatment resistant paradigm is based upon the notion that depression is an acute episodic condition with good inter-episode functioning and that if there is non-response to a treatment it means that you've simply got a medication which either pharmacokinetically or pharmacodynamically is just not the right treatment so therefore you just try another one and another one and another one and another one and when do you actually stop most of the treatments that we have uh conventional antidepressants that we have at the moment uh have a similar mechanism of action uh, in the the uk british national formulary we have over 30 antidepressants listed um bap guidelines for the management of uh, depression Uh, recommend a number of augmentation strategies if you just take four of those strategies and half of the antidepressants that we have available and you think about the various combinations and you try them not for great long periods of time you would keep doing that for 15 years and at what point in that 15 years do you go hold on a second it may be still appropriate to think about other treatments and thinking about, uh, you know, we, we need to think, is there something else that we haven't tried that might be worthwhile? But we also need to stop and go, hold on. Why is this depression proving so difficult to treat? Is there some something else going on that we need to address? So given all of these these issues, the the, the semantics, the problems around the definitions, uh, the fact that it's not just response. The fact that we perhaps need to think more broadly about why somebody's depression is not responding. The concept of difficult depression was proposed as being a, as as being a better alternative, and it was proposed by uh, John Rush from the States, de Meetenair from um, Belgium, who's speaking in the symposium, and uh, Scott Aronson, who's another American psychiatrist. And they proposed that difficult to treat depression was semantically somewhat better. There's still a negative side to it. It's it's depression is difficult. Um, uh, You know, the the episode of depression is proving difficult to treat. But it is, by saying it's difficult to treat, that is a recognition that that's a problem, not just for the patient, but for the patient and the clinician. Whereas treatment resistant depression, well, that's something out there. That's the, the, the patient or the disease. It's not the clinician. It's not our fault. It's not our problem, almost. Whereas difficult to treat depression is recognizing the patient's got a problem and the clinician, the cl- treating team have got a clinician. Um, but what they did was, uh, that, uh, and I've worked subsequently with them um, and a number of other international experts putting together a model for how to manage difficult to treat depression. Um, this model, is is taking a somewhat different perspective. It's saying that patients got an ongoing burden from their depression or its treatment, and that burden is continuing despite our usual treatment efforts. So how and when you decide somebody has difficult to treat depression will depend on the clinician and the setting they're working in. So a GP might describe somebody as having difficult to treat depression at a much earlier stage than somebody who works in a specialist mood disorder service, for example. Um, so it is recognizing that at this moment in time, we've got a clinical problem. And then the, mo- the, 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 the model of care is based around chronic illness management um, paradigms. How do you manage chronic disorders like diabetes hypertension rheumatoid arthritis that where symptoms can wax and wane people can have episodes when things are much worse but and periods when things are much better but it isn't just a simple acute episodic condition like otitis media in your ear it's very different to that and that's what we see it with patients with depression and the crux of it is that um the, the the idea is we we try and understand not just why a patient has depression, but why the depression is proving difficult to treat. It's looking at all of the sort of etiological factors that are both um, predispose the individual to become depressed, but are also potentially perpetuating the episode of depression. And that could be anything, absolutely anything. So it could be comorbid uh, physical health problems. It could be the person's got hypothyroidism. So if we treat the hypothyroidism, the depression may become easier to treat. It could be a woman who's perimenopausal when we know there is an increased risk of depression. So if we treat the perimenopausal issues, maybe that will make the depression easier to treat. It could be comorbid uh, psychological or psychiatric problems, for example, past trauma. And if we again address that, it may make the depression easier to treat. It's not saying that we don't want to keep thinking about different treatments and exploring treatments with different mechanisms of action for our individual patients. But it is also emphasizing that it isn't just about medication, it's about the whole um, breadth of treatments that we have available psychotherapies, neurostimulatory treatments, social intervention, self help. It's trying to bring all of those to bear for our individual um, and basing the package of care. On our assessment of all of the sort of underlying features that may be making this depression uh, harder to treat, so I really believe it's a it's a really big step change, in my opinion, in the way that we think about depression when we're having difficulties and in in, in in treating it. And I think in the clinic, it is a much more useful concept than TRD. TRD, or treatment-resistant depression, is still important because it's a more objective criteria. It's got more objective criteria to define it. And it's useful in defining populations that we might do uh, clinical trials in. So if we want to compare different treatments, TRD is what we want to be using. If we want to study a treatment for licensing, then we need to use TRD. But if we are a clinician in the clinic, the DTD concept and model of care is much more sensible. It, it, it is giving you a framework and structure to think about how you're going to manage the patient rather than just saying, oh, the patient's depressions, failed two treatments, they've got TRD. Well, OK, fine. What, what do we do then?
1: But surely it's still looking at the problem through the lens of depression. You're approaching it with a very clinical, we're trying to help this person become less depressed. As you say, you know, the complexity is social, it's psychological, all sorts of other things going on. And, you know, the way that we measure depression in research is a very clinical approach, you know, so you can improve on a depression scale, but still have a terrible life and still be really unhappy about, you know, the fact that you don't have a relationship and you can't see your kids and your job is awful. So don't we need to measure outcomes differently for this to really work?
0: Yes. And I think in two different ways. And it's something that I'm going to be uh, talking about in my presentation um, in this plenary session. Um, So if, if I actually just go back and answer a slightly different question first, in the plenary, what we're doing is we're having a presentation from Kuhn, one of the, Kuhn de Mithiner, one of the original proposers for this concept of difficult to treat depression. And he's going to give some of the background that led to this proposal. The purpose of the plenary is to then think, is this concept relevant to conditions beyond unipolar depression? So I'm going to be looking at the, the issue around bipolar disorder and the long and the short of it is, well, yeah, of course, this is just as applicable to bipolar disorder as it is to unipolar depression. Um, but we're then going to expand that further um, into presentations um, from Friona Gagan, who is going to be looking at um, uh, psychosis. And and the final talk is from uh, Katarina Donch. Um, from Freiburg in Germany, who is going to be talking about um, whether the concept can be applied to anxiety disorders and when we might want to talk about treatment-resistant anxiety disorders as opposed to -to difficult-to-treat anxiety disorders. And I I suspect it'll be interesting to hear what she has to say, but I I suspect that what she's going to say is that treatment resistant anxiety disorders will still be important again for defining populations for research for treatment trials but the the, the difficult to treat concept and model of care is again just as applicable to anxiety disorders as to depression but to then come back to your original question which was around how we measure things i'm i'm going to briefly touch upon this in in my presentation And as I said, I think there are two ways that we need to think about how we measure outcomes differently. The first is really from what you were originally saying about quality of life. I I think that's absolutely right. The most important thing for patients is their quality of life and their psychosocial functioning, which often can be one and the same thing, but but they're at least very closely related. In the model of care we have for difficult to treat depression, we emphasize that there are three targets, three outcomes, goals of treatment. Um, Optimizing symptomatic improvement, like clearly is going to be one of them. Secondly, reducing risk of relapse, because this is recognizing that these conditions are highly recurrent, which is slightly different to the treatment resistant model. You know, which only thinks about the current episode. We need to be thinking very much about how do we prevent further episodes. But the third one is around how do we enhance quality of life and psychosocial functioning. And in, in the model of care, we emphasize the importance of discussing with patients what symptoms might be particularly problematic to them and their quality of life, and think about whether there is anything we can do to particularly address those symptoms and hence improve their uh, overall uh, uh, functioning and quality of life. Now, that might also mean we need to be thinking about all the social interventions to address some of the social circumstances as well around uh, the patient, which is contributing to the poor quality of life. Absolutely. The second way I think we have to think about outcome measures differently is that traditionally, trials, treatment trials of um, patients with um, mood disorders or anxiety disorders or psychoses, they have a single end point measure. So we might do a trial for six, eight, 12 weeks, whatever the duration is. And we assess patients at the end of that period of time. And we look at their rating scale score then. We might look at the percentage reduction from baseline. We might look at the uh, proportion of patients in our sample who have achieved a response or a remission at that single endpoint in time. That's sort of fine if you are thinking about an episodic condition, but difficult to treat depression is emphasizing that these conditions we're talking about, not just depression, but bipolar, anxiety, psychosis, They are more chronic conditions with episodes but frequent relapses or symptoms waxing and waning in severity. And if that is the case, just looking at one point in time and assessing the effects of a treatment is not particularly sensible. You, You want to know whether a treatment is acutely effective. But we need to know an awful lot more about it so one of the proposals um for for thinking about how we assess outcomes more effectively in future is um to use integrative measures i.e measures that are looking at outcomes over time so we might say for example the proportion of time that a patient has got at least some sort of response over a more prolonged period of time and we would want to be seeing that proportion being higher um, with an effective treatment. And um, together with many of the people who are involved in coming up with a difficult to treat um, concept and then model of care, um, I've been involved in doing some work where we looked at single endpoint measures with integrative outcome measures and looked at which were most effective in identifying improvements in quality of life and differentiating between treatments and the long and the short of it is that um you don't throw out single endpoint measures they can be very helpful for quality of life uh, patient rated scales tend to be better than clinician rated scales um but that integrative measures are also important. And they explain a different part of the variance in terms of improvement in quality of life. And when we're comparing between treatments, the integrative measures can often be better than the single endpoint one. They can have a a bigger effect size or, or demonstrate bigger effect sizes than single endpoint ones. So I think or what i hope i will get across in my talk is that we we need to be thinking a little bit more broadly i think when we are defining our outcome measures in trials so symptoms yes quality of life yes but also we need to be assessing both of these things not just at single endpoints but also thinking about integrative measures over more pro- pro- prolonged periods of time <music>